What's happening, guys? Welcome back. You've made it for episode number six. We're cruising right along here. I'm having so much fun bringing you these episodes and seeing all of the feedback that you're getting and learning your stories of how these are affecting your lives in a positive way. This week for episode number six, we've got a great friend of mine, ESPN film producer, Mr. Kenan K. Holly. What a great story he has. We're going to touch a little bit about his story, and we're going to talk a little bit about what's happening in society right now in reference to the massacre in Dallas, the situations in Baton Rouge, as well as Minnesota. So let's get into this week of episode number six of Creating Space with Mr. Kenan K. Holly. What's happening, guys? I'm looking at a legend, a young legend, albeit, but a legend all the same. This is Kenan K. Holly, former Duke Free safety, football, a beast from what I understand, but he's doing something far more important in the director and producer realm. Kenan, thanks for coming on the show, my man. Yeah, thank you for the invite, Wes. I'm happy to be here with you, man. Ready to talk sports. Let's talk I, art. And I love it, together. man. The, the semblance of all of it. Uh, you know, for me, it's easy to be able to rep off, but tell the listeners just exactly how you introduce yourself to anyone who that you meet that wants to know about your professional life. Like, who is Kenan K. Holly? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I always wonder what to say when I'm on an airplane, sit next <laughs> to somebody, and they ask me, what do you do? And I say, I try to keep it as simple as possible, shortest answer as possible. Okay. So someone goes, what do you do? And I go, oh, I make movies. Right. I make movies. And that's it. That's it. You and keep it right there. Yeah, because sometimes I'm the writer, sometimes I'm the producer, sometimes I'm the director. It varies, you know, what my role is. How cool is that to say, man? Oh, it is cool. You've got to build your chest up when you say it. No, you got to say it real relaxed. You can't build your chest. You got to lay back all smooth like you're saying, like you sell staplers. (laughs) Yeah, I make movies. Yeah, I make movies. What what they got here? They got peanuts. They got cranberry juice. (laughs) So you don't even wait for their reaction. You just throw it at them and and just allow them to hit them and see what happens. Yeah, I like to see the look on their face. It's interesting, man. Like a lot of people who do what I do, have done it their whole professional careers. Right. It's been their job since they left college. But I took in a divergent track. Okay. You know, I came out of Duke in 99, summer of 99, went straight to NFL Films, was there two years, was great. With With, NFL Films? With NFL Films, that was my start. (sighs) Steve Sable was my mentor. Steve was, man, he was the dopest boss. Really? Ever. What makes him What makes him so dope? I mean, obviously, he was the man and he knew it. Mm -hmm. He was the guy, the mind behind NFL Films, but... He was what makes him so good? And he was he, like, look, he. I went into his office because I just wanted to talk to him, and I seen him on TV all growing up, and I, you know, loved what he did. And no one really, the younger people. I was in a recruiting class. They brought in about eighteen young producers. Okay, um, so you were one of eighteen brought in brought at this in. time. Yeah. So they this was in. your draft class. Yeah, my draft class. In fact, I was really the second draft class because I stayed. I stuck around at Duke for an extra year to play my redshirt year, so I didn't go when they first recruited me. Oh, really? Yeah. So I had to wait. I told them I want to go back to Duke, play my senior year, my fifth year senior year, and I'll see if I can come on with you guys the next year. So really, Tiffany Montgomery from Duke and myself are the first African Americans ever hired as producers at NFL Films. Holy smokes! That was nineteen. Highly touted. Yeah, that was So you must have been a first round draft pick if you put it if you frame it like that because once you turn them down, they're like, "Hi, he's not getting away from us. We got to get him this no, next year." No, it was the opposite. They, when I turned them down, they kind of forgot about me. Really? In fact, the way I got the job is I went up the I stayed a year and I said no, I'm staying a year. I stayed a year. I got the whole year on scholarship, which you don't normally do. I got the whole year. I wow. left school on Friday, drove to from Duke in Durham, North Carolina to Cherry Hill, New Jersey, where NFL Films. Where I drove all the way up there. On the end of day Friday, they didn't know I was coming. I went up there. One of my boys from Duke had got recruited the year also, the year before, Rob. 
and uh, Rob Gehrig. And I drove up there and I told him, Rob, hey, I'm here. Really? He's like, you're here? I was you like, didn't yeah. tell anyone? They didn't tell anyone. I just walked up in there, said, oh. talked to the secretary. He was like, what's up? Who? And what the guy a who legend. Me, you just arrived. Just arrived. Chris, Chris Barlow, who I love, he does NFL Films Presents. He's great. Really smart. Really good. He was like, hey, Kenan, what are you doing here? He came out and met me. He toured me around. No he took way. Me around. I, saw, I saw Tiffany, who I went to school with. I saw Rob, I went to school with. And I really just came in there and just like, yo, this I'm is I'm not going to be denied. I want to no, be here. like I'm here. I'm here yeah. because I belong here. You right. all know I belong here. I do. I don't care what year it is. When I love that, man. You decided, and probably a mixture of ego, but yet determination. It was mm-hmm. like, I want to do this. They wanted me last year. Why can't I fit in? Let me get in here because this is where I'm meant to be. Yeah. Take some courage. It took courage and it took, you know, I'm a person who's so laid back by nature. A lot of times it takes a personal relationship to get me inspired. Okay. And at the time, my girlfriend in college, who I really, really loved, she had left the year before and she was working in New York. All right. And I didn't have a job yet. If I stayed in school next year, I didn't have a job. And I said, if I want to get this girl, I better get a job somewhere up there close, close. to In New York and New Jersey, NFL Films an hour and a half away. So that was really like my kick in the ass. Like, hey, man, you better get up here and get this job. Man, Why is it that girl. love normally stimulates or heartbreak or, or love all the mm-hmm. same? It stimulates greatness. Why is that, you think? I think it's, uh, it's funny you say that. There's a book written in like the 1930s um, by I think Napoleon Hill is the author. Think and Grow Rich is the book. And there's okay. a whole chapter on sex transmutation. Sex transmutation. That term is sex transmutation. Right. What that basically means is taking your sexual energy, your romantic energy, and transferring it into your whatever endeavor. It could be an athletic endeavor. It could be an artistic endeavor. It could Holy be a financial smokes. endeavor. And it talks in that chapter, though, not only about transmuting your energy. It talks about men, great men of history, who were inspired by a woman, who wow. were mediocre men before they encountered the woman who they either wanted to get with or they were in love with or they married, his desire for her made him into a great man. Wow. And I think that's very true for me. I'm very influenced by my love of whatever woman's in my life at the time. Mm. You know, I was really, um, grew up in a close, affectionate relationship with my sister, my mother. They're really tight with me. They're both very accomplished, very smart women. Awesome. And so... I think that has an effect on me and other men. Like, you want to get that girl? You'll do whatever. <laughs> you know, you'll find ways to drive yourself from, you'll be living in South Lake City, Utah, and she's off in Louisiana, and somehow you pop up on the weekend because right. you're inspired. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Love will, love will make you traverse any sort of terrain yeah. to get to it, man. Yeah. Uh, and I, that has happened very similarly in, in my life as yeah. well. And I, and I tell myself that because I can't reach out to her, but I tell myself that, like, thank you. For trying and getting through that hard heartbreak because, man, did you come out on the other side stronger, faster, yeah. more more determined. What a story, man. Transmutation. Sex transmutation. Take that energy and place it in another endeavor. And it's mm. a very powerful thing. I try it even to this day. Like, I work at it from time to time. It's hard, man. Right. It's hard because as men, we're trained to be direct. Like, whatever you want, whatever your energy tells you to desire, you want that thing. You don't normally... Think to like a, a strong man in our definition in America is someone who desires X and gets X. Right. Whether X be that house, right? Whether X be that car, yep. Whether X be that woman right there. Mm-hmm. This man is the man because every X that he desires, X, Y, and Z, he gets X, Y, and Z. He gets it. And if you're a man who desires X, Y, and Z but doesn't get any X, Y, and Z, you're considered to be soft, weak. Right. You know, a simple dude or a punk or whatever. So you're not the alpha. You're not the alpha because you don't make things happen that you right. want to happen. So right. the idea of taking a desire, instead of pursuing that desire, 
Like I want X and I'm going to get X. Yeah. Instead say, I want X, but I realize X may not be good for me. Okay. Y definitely is good for me. I'm going to take the desire that I have for X and somehow transmute it, transform it into desire for Y. That's a powerful thing to be able to do. What a way to start a podcast. Just dropping knowledge, and, and I'm starting to, and I'm sure the listeners are, figure out that there is a uh, area of genius inside of what most people would look at with a six-foot-plus mm-hmm. built frame. There's something going on upstairs, so th- what a great way to start this. Let's backtrack it a little bit, though. Let's get back to Kenan in high school, mm-hmm. all right? Uh, and most athletes, I dealt with this, most individuals that are not athletes, that are not in your realm, look at you and think that you are singularly focused. Mm. Athletics is all that matters. For you, you went to Duke. You were a varsity-level competitive athlete. How and when... Did you find out that you had a talent in the creative arts? When did you realize that I'm not just good at football? Yeah. I'm also good at this. And how, when did you find that? And how did you ex- coexist with other athletes who all they cared about was the game? Right. Well, two moments, fourth grade and eighth grade. There are two moments. Two I'll moments. I can give you exact moments. So okay. Miss Nancy Leeton, art and music teacher at St. James uh, School in Third Ward, Houston, Texas. It was a school, basically all black kids and almost all white teachers, but it was all good. It was cool. And she had the control of the plays and theater arts. Okay. I never wanted to be up front. I'd always just say I'll be in the choir. My (laughs) sister was like the star. I didn't want anyone looking at me. I was a super quiet kid. Right. And they were doing Winnie the Pooh. And she, I was like, everyone's raising their hand for parts. And she was like, well, we need someone really good to be Christopher Robin because he's basically like the human narrator of this play. Right. I'm not even listening because I'm not getting up there, Wes. I'm about to raise my hand for the choir and go hide in the back. (laughs) So see, everyone raised their hand for, you know, who wants to be Christopher Robin? Who wants to be Winnie Pooh? Winnie the Pooh, who wants to be in the choir? I raised my hand for the choir. She's like, no, Ken and Holly, come down here. You're about to try out for Christopher Robin right now. Because I could really read well. And back in that day in school, they'd always make you read out loud. And I could really read out loud with a lot of expression and a lot of energy. Because it was easy for me to interpret the words. So I would concentrate, instead of on reading the words, I concentrate on like livening them up for the class when I read out loud. So I always, when I read out loud, I try to make it like entertaining. Right. And so she'd heard that and that's why she wanted me to do it. And so the night of the play comes, we rehearse, I memorize all my lines. And the first scene is I walk in, I lead in all the characters, but in their little kid form. So I'm in fourth grade. I'm supposed to lead in the kindergartens who play the little kids. Right before the play started, the kid who was going to be Owl got sick and didn't show up. We had no replacement. She's like, well, go out there. It's about to start. You got to go out there and make something up. So I walk out there. I'm like fourth grade. I'm like, how old is that? Like nine years old? I walk out. I'm introducing each of the characters to the audience, right? I'm already nervous in my first ever play, and I'm not in the choir. I'm actually having to talk. Yeah. And I got to Al. I was like, Al, Al isn't going to be with us tonight. He had to attend a spelling bee. And the whole crowd, I remember, it's like, ha, starts laughing. I was like, oh, shoot. I started loosening up. Yeah, like I was like Johnny Carson show. I'm like, yeah, I got more material, people. Hold on. <laughs> just wait for it. It just started. Yeah, yeah. So that was like the first moment of that night. I remember just everyone coming up to me and like, Clapping me on my back and my dad and mom are proud. And I remember that feeling like, dude, I actually like for I'm super shy. But when the lights come on, I feel kind of good about putting on a show. I'm pretty good at this. Yeah, I feel like I, I just like putting on a show. I like making. What do you think she saw in you at that point that you didn't see in yourself? If you're quiet all the time mm-hmm. and you're, you're always falling back to the back of the classroom or the back of the choir. What do you think you did? Was it in the way you wrote? Was it in the way you spoke? What do you think she saw? Mm, that's a good question. I think what she saw... Because she knew you were the person did. for the part. Yeah, I don't know how and she she was not going to let you no, run from No, she wouldn't. I tried to get what out of it. What did she see? 
I think she saw the effort to connect. Like when I was reading out loud in those classes, I wasn't just putting on like extra sauce on the reading because I wanted people to know I was smart. I did want that, but I also wanted to break the monotony of a boring school day by giving the other kids a good reading, like give them something to actually listen to. And I think she saw that sense of like desire. This kid wants to connect. He's shy. He don't talk much. He doesn't feel comfortable talking. He feels like an outcast a little bit, but I can hear in his voice he wants to connect. You were directing them to the story and the way that it could be produced. You've been doing that since you were young. Yeah. You've always been a director, always been a producer. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I never thought about it like That's that. That's crazy. I, I never thought about it like that. The other moment, so the other moment, I'll take you Eighth to. grade, right? Eighth grade, okay. Miss, uh, Miss Cochran, she was the speech teacher, and I'd just begun playing. No, excuse me, seventh grade, seventh grade. i just begun playing football. I wasn't that good. It's interesting. My last talent to come was my athletic talent. Wow, okay. I would go whole basketball seasons as a kid on Little League and wouldn't score a point the whole season. Really? Yeah, I would play football, and I played, they put me a corner when no one threw the ball. You know what I'm saying? Like gotcha. I wasn't I wasn't that dude growing yeah. up. Yeah. So my last talent to emerge was my athletic ability was the last. Before that I was a smart student. Okay. And then I became someone who was kind of a funny person in class who could be funny. And then I became someone who was like, you know, who was uh he's good at school, but he also is good a good friend. He's good at talking to people. I remember the day I made varsity football in Texas, this girl came up to me who I've known forever, me and her friends, Amanda, she comes to me, she comes up to me, she's like, I didn't know you played football. <laughs> so it Got was it. Uh, it was so my my you talk about like emergence of talent my talent kind of emerged in the opposite way of most athletes where they're athlete first and then everything else second I was everything else first and then athlete was the final piece and so you had some sort of growth spurt when you were older and, and you started to come into your body and recognize that you were just as athletic as the next guy I never really had a growth spurt you know I was um I was five eight 134 pounds when I first made varsity on our team in Texas, wow. the, we played the McCullough Highlanders, now the Woodlands Highlanders. We'll sub to the woods. Uh, <laughs> Got to throw the W up when you say that, the Woodlands. Uh, All right. But when I got there on varsity, we were the number two team in the state, the number 14 team in the nation. We had a bunch of really good players on our team, a bunch of All-American dudes on our team. And I was shocked when they moved me up to varsity. And uh, I, I was not big. I never had a growth spurt. What happened was I just really, 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 really loved to play football. Got it. And I went from being a small guy to just being an average-sized guy. And that's the, all I needed was to get to be even with everybody else. So got by it. the time I was 18, I got to be even. You know, in uh, sophomore year, junior year, I got big enough to just be as big as a regular guy. Sure. And that's all I needed, you know, so. So once the playing field was leveled, yeah, it that's was all. On. You were crushing it. It was on, man. <laughs> and so why, why Duke? Uh, really? This is so shallow because their hats are in the mall and I thought I could get girls if I chose Duke. (laughs) (laughs) I cannot, I can't blame you. I can't. Why did I choose the College of Charleston? Because most people said there were beautiful girls who went down there. Yeah, for real. We're 17, 18 year old kids. What do you think we're motivated by? Who believed that? That's real. That's real. It is real. That's a real answer. Like I was like, I only wanted to go to one school that was Stanford. They didn't invite me. They invited me to walk on. They didn't give me a scholarship. So I only had two scholarship offers, D1, which was Rice at the crib in Houston, mm. in Duke. And I knew I wasn't going to stay home. I knew no matter what, to me, college meant adventure. It meant getting away. It meant freedom. It meant experiencing. It meant turning into a man. It meant getting away. Yeah. So Duke came out of nowhere at the very end and, I, and offered me a scholarship. And I, I grew up hating Duke. 
Really? I grew up a UNC fan. Okay. That, that's easy to do. Yeah, yeah. That's it's easy, easy to, to be. do. No one likes Duke from, if you're not from like, I mean, some people do, but most people, Duke is a well-hated school. That's how I describe Duke. It's well-hated. Well, come on. There's a bunch of unathletic white guys running that's around. What I, and that's what I know? said. I was like, Duke is super like prissy, Vanilla. country club, yeah. white dudes. I'm, right. I hate them. I love UNC. I'm going to UNC if I can. And, and, you know, and it, it felt like I, I took that trip out to Duke. I never forget Coach Fred Goldsmith was the coach at Rice. He recruited me when I was 15 years old in Houston because he was in the same city. He was the first coach to really recruit me hard. He made the change to Duke right before National Signing Day. He recruited me on my recruiting visit to Rice. Then he switched schools and went to Duke in the middle of all this. No way. So that's where my scholarship offer came from, from Duke. It was really Rice extended to Duke. And so, and so he, he said, come up here. I said, I hate Duke, Coach. I'm not coming up there. He <laughs> said, you have one visit left. Come. Don't waste your visit. I said, right. okay, I will have, I'll have fun and go up there and have a good time. And I got there, and it was the worst. It was the worst, best feeling, Wes, because I came you hated campus. that you loved it. I hated that I loved it. As soon as I got there, I was like, "These guys." It was the only school I went to on my recruiting trips. I went to UT, A and M, Princeton. Wow, Rice. what a list of yeah. schools! Man. Harvard was recruiting me, and I was like, "Man, I went to Princeton. Man, I was like, I'll never go here. I stick out like a sore thumb. Right. Like these dudes." They don't really care about football. I mean, I'm trying to play on TV, fool. Yeah. I'm trying to play Florida State. I want to see what the number one team in the country hits like. Right. You know, y'all are talking about, like, we were up in the library on, like, Friday night on the recruiting trip. I'm like, what are we doing in the library, man? <laughs> I'm like, y'all don't got any better parties than this? I can't fool with y'all. I cannot fool with y'all. So when I got to Duke, the guys were like me. Yeah. It. it was like, a, it was like a 85 guys who I could all relate to. And I felt so at home that I was like, oh. God, I love Duke. What's going on? I right. can't believe well, it. It's a beautiful campus as well, man. Yeah. Wow, what a green campus and yeah. full of history, Cameron Arena. Yeah. That's, I mean, did they take you on any of those? Yeah, I didn't notice any of that stuff. We went. I didn't notice any of that. All I noticed was that the guys here are like me. They want to win. And these girls, oh, my God. <laughs> The, the African American girls easy. at Duke, they are sign, beautiful. Coach? Yeah, I was like, yeah. dude, these black girls at Duke got it going on. Their hair is just <laughs> pressed down. So I mean, outfits spring, really? looking splendid. They're so smart when they talk to you. I was like, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm in heaven. They had a spotlight following them around <laughs> campus. You knew exactly where they were. Uh, it, that was like blondes for me when I was at Charleston. I mean, it, I had it benefited me. I like to say it benefited me on the soccer field. It just my my head was always on a swivel. I was always <laughs> checking my shoulder, looking for the next pass, right? But yeah, yeah. Um, I, I I understand what that's like where you where your motivating factors sometimes are the female. Seems to be some parallel lines concluding uh through your story so far. So collegiate football, was that your dream as a kid? Yes, it was. That was my ultimate like uh that was my ultimate athletic dream. It's like I used to watch sports intensely with my father, every sport, hockey, baseball, and I love football the most. And I said, I one day I want to play college football. I want to play on TV. That was my goal. I was like, I want to, I want to make it to play on TV. Like, keep in mind, I was not athletic, right. very small. Right. And my dad's like, Kenan, if you make it to play college D1 football, I'll buy you whatever car you want. I was like, you serious, Dad? He's like, <laughs> you yeah. You should have seen, listeners, for you, you guys who cannot see him, you should have seen the way his face changed after he mentioned that his dad would buy him a car. I mean, he was like, all right, I'm about to get whatever car I want. I locked him into the deal, Wes. I was like, are you serious, Dad? So if I, I, I repeated it. So if I get a D1 college scholarship, you'll buy me whatever car I want. He's like, yes. That was when I was like 11 years old. 
And uh, it was not on the horizon then. And then I remember going to him um, after we played Westfield, I think, my senior year. They are supposed to be one of the better teams in Houston. Right. We beat them like 34 nothing. I ran for like 150 yards, was killing them on kick returns. I played D that game, had 12 tackles, got a, recovered a fumble. Crushed I think I caught it. a touchdown pass. And this is Texas football. Yeah, this this is, is no short no. feet. And it was crazy because, like I said, this was I was not the star player in seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, any of that. All this right. happened for me at the end. Okay. So I was like, I, it was after the game. My dad came on the field with my mom, and they gave me a big hug. And I was like, I remember hugging my mom. I kissed her on the cheek. And my dad's six foot seven, 300 pounds. He's huge. Whoa. So I hugged my dad. I reached up, hug him, and I stayed there close to him. I said, Dad, you know I'm about to get that car, right? <laughs> <laughs> what did he say? He just started laughing. He was so proud of me. He knew. He's thinking, shit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So did he get you a car? Oh, yeah. 90, 1994 Mustang GT 5.0 Forest Green Peanut Butter on the Guts. <laughs> it was lovely. So every girl in Duke oh, was riding. God. Was it convertible? No, no, it wasn't convertible. It was not that convertible. was the last thing I could have got was get the drop top on him. You, 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 uh, too much you weren't patient with the selection. You saw mm-hmm. one and you went with yeah, it. Yeah, I did. That's How exactly can you turn down a 5.0 Mustang with Peanut Butter Guts? Yeah. For man. those of you who don't understand Peanut Butter Guts, I got some sweat about me guys i know what's going on <laughs> explain it to him Wes. that's uh that's the brown colored leather in the interior that's the interior y'all the you know what i'm saying that's it. so <clears throat> let me uh let me preach it to you guys let you know i know what's up tell me this i want to talk a little bit about the creative side because myself as an abstract artist i've always had that kind of uh flair to me but i i suppressed it because it wasn't cool to be the artist when mm. i was little i mean my mom always used to be like Wes, you should be studying, but all you do is have doodles in class all over your paper. And I'm thinking, because that's all I'm thinking about, you know, like how, how can I make something cool out of nothing? How can mm-hmm. I make an, an idea in my mind come into existence? So tell me about this creative side where what you do for a living, which is so cool, man, you take a story that is in individuals' minds, solely in their minds, and you recreate it to literally take it out of other people's minds and put it into other people's minds who never experienced it. Tell me how you became to find that you had that talent. Wow, never, <laughs> I never even thought about it like that, right? man, in those terms. I think it's one of those things where I just believe in myself that I can do things. You know, like I, I can do a bunch of things well, but I don't do any one thing extraordinarily well like if you for example you're a soccer player right you're a good soccer player very good you get to the higher levels you realize there's some guys out here though who are extraordinary yep like they are gifted physically and talent wise and i think i'm in the realm of someone who's good at a lot of things but i don't have i'm not like whoa extraordinarily gifted at any one thing okay so when i turned my attention to making documentary films it was more less about the the making documentary films or being a good student or being a good athlete. It's more about being good. Can I be good at this? Can I succeed at this? Can I win at this? And I believe I can win uh, at everything. Wrong or right. That's my, yeah, I believe I can win at everything. We may be playing Uno. I'm about to do it to you, boy. (laughs) We playing Uno. We could be having a swimming race and you and I could be in the ocean. We jump off the boat, me, you, Wes, let's race to the shore. I don't know what your swimming background is. You might be, have been the best swimmer in your whole city. I still feel like I'm about to win this race. (laughs) And I think that kind of feeling of like, okay, I can figure this out. I can do it. And what comes with figuring it out? What are the pieces you have to excel at? You know, okay, I have to be able to sit down across from somebody, ask them questions about their life in a way that really makes them tell me genuinely what happened in their life. Not, not the same thing they tell every other person who asks them every day, hey, Dominique Wilkins, what was it like playing at Georgia? Oh, man, it was a great experience. No, I got to say, like, 
right, Dominique, when you arrived in Athens and you had so much expectation on your shoulders and you see all these other guys across from you came from their cities and their towns and they're supposed to be the man too. When you walk into the gym the first time, how much fear was running through your mind? How much fear, like how much thoughts of like failure were running through your mind at that point? <clears throat> what does Dominique Wilkins say at that point? Yeah, well, well, here's the key. I asked him not, were you scared? I didn't ask him a yes or no question. I asked him a question that's a philosophical, like it has to make your mind go to a, a, a how, what. And the ultimate question you can ask, and you have to really warm up to this, is ask the question, why? I only asked that question in an interview maybe once or twice at the very end of the interview to actually let the word why come out of my mouth because it's such a powerful and personal thing to ask somebody why. Right. You know, you can ask the you can ask a why question. Like I can ask Dominique why he chose to demand to be traded from Utah to the Atlanta Hawks without saying why. I'll say what because it's less intrusive. I'll be like, what was your motivation? What was your what was your driving force to tell you you had to leave Utah? What was it going through your heart that told you Utah wasn't the place for you to succeed? What was that? And then leave it open-ended. And now he, in the best, you know you asked a good question, Wes, when you ask it. I'm like, what was it that ran through your heart that made you want to leave Utah? What was that? You know what he does? Nothing. He just sits there for like five seconds and like. <sighs> you can see it hit mm. him. He's thinking. Like now you're taking him to a place he hasn't gone to in years. Now you're wow. taking him to a place where people don't ask him about that ever as he walks around Atlanta. Now you're taking him to a place where he has to really, he may never have contemplated what it was. He has to examine himself. When you get done with a good interview, the interviewee should feel like they know themselves better than they did before y'all sat down to talk. And that comes through the homework process that you do or that sense of connection that you had a talent for even when you're four years old where you were able to look an interviewee in the face and ask them a question that you knew that they were emotionally attached to and it, it somehow had to get around the confines of whatever wall they had built around the subject. Do you think that is a talent that you possess, or do you think that's a product of your hard work? For me, it was definitely learned. Okay. It wasn't natural at all. I tended to ask at the beginning of my career at NFL Films a lot of yes or no questions. Did you guys think you were going to beat the 49ers? Yes. I'm like, oh, that, wasn't, that didn't go very well. I'm like, right. <laughs> I'm like, do you think you're going to have a long career? Uh, yes. I'm like, this, isn't, this is not a good interview. What's wrong? And I didn't understand about open-ended questions at that time. So it's definitely something I learned. I think some people can be born with that talent. But for me, I was such a shy person. Most of my thought energy went inward. Okay. So, so I thought about myself a lot, yeah. you know, for better and for worse. I thought about my own self. So when I talked to someone else, it was very difficult for me to frame things in their mindset. So that's definitely something I've had to learn. Not so what are the keys for that? The key That's is, very interesting for me as I go off in this new venture and I'm sitting with individuals like yourself who have done so much in society and who have done, in particularly this exact occasion, now you're on the other end of it. How do you prep yourself more and more? Is it, is it a process of work and research or is it only life? Is it experience? I think for me, first thing is when I go into an interview, I have no notes. I memorize all the notes beforehand. I have no questions in front of me, no paper. I learned that from Ray Dittinger at at ESPN, excuse me, NFL Films. Dittinger's a brilliant writer up there in Philly. He's a really good interviewer, a really good writer, and a really good interviewer. And he said, don't have notes. It should feel like a conversation. The interviewee, in fact, should not know when you started the camera. They should feel like it's a continuation of the talk y'all were having. We all were grabbing drinks before you started the interview, and y'all were getting water, and now y'all sat down. 
And now you started talking, you got them talking and you give your little cameraman a hit him on the leg. The cameraman will start the camera rolling and the guy doesn't even know the interview's going on. He's got no clue. He has no clue because you got him in a conversation. And so I think the key to it is really be studied up, be well educated and well versed on what you need for him to say. I know I need this person to say this, this and that. But now once I go in, I kind of have to release all of that and just really connect with this person. You know, I have to really wow. connect, you know, really, really listen. So and, and, and managing, listening to where the conversation is going and then in your mind, selecting which questions that you've already prepped for mm-hmm. are going in line with where the connect conversation hey, is going. That's the game. You're talking about the game, Wes. Ooh. He just said a word right there. Did y'all hear him? He said, you are asking questions to somebody. You're listening to them. As you're listening, you're in your mind recording an index of what you need them to say. Yep. Have they already said it? Are they going the right direction? Do I need to change their direction? That's the game right there. That's directing. And that, that's what I'm doing right now in my own mind. I've, now, I'm, now I'm a bit sensitive, yeah. uh, insecure, because I, <laughs> I got do have my notes iPhone. now. He's like, I don't want to look at my notes. Kenneth said you're supposed to look at notes <laughs> no more. He's going to be checking me now. I can't turn my phone on. But I had notes because I was, I was super excited about this conversation. And I wanted to make sure that I gave off the good impression. But at the same time... I do feel that every time I look down at my phone, I'm taking away that genuine mm-hmm. connection from the interviewee. And you don't need it. And to be, I don't need and it. That's the key. It's like putting down, a, taking your training wheels off your bike. You need them until you take them off. And you realize you don't need them. You, you don't fall need down them. a couple of times. You roll down the hill and you start, oh, I got balance. If you were to lose your notes or have your power go off in your phone, what would you do? Would you kill the interview? No. You keep it going. You, 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 you spontaneously figure out what do I need to do to get this guy there. And plus, you're good, man, at being able to look someone in the eyes and say, I'm here. Whatever you're saying, I'm here. Like, okay. yeah, I'm, I'm hearing you. I'm here. Yeah. I mean, that's a great trait to have when it comes to talking to people in general, to let them know you're actually here with them as they talk. Because right. how many, think about how many times in the day do you talk to people at work or people at the checkout line, at the, like, um, you're going to, like, the quick stop to get gas, and they're not really here with you. You could tell. They're not there. They're not there. They're even sometimes your friends. You're talking to them, and they're not really... <sighs> Listening, they're kind of listening, but they're waiting to listen so they can say so what they want to say. Exactly. Yes, listening with the intent to respond, right? Not right. with the understanding to listen. Yeah. So you ask what the technique is. I think the technique is just to be here, presence. Be here, presence. Be here. Being present, man. That that is one of. Uh, I'm reading a book called Flow right now, and it talks about how your interpretation of the present moment is all you have. And in order for you to statistically increase your happiness in life, you have to control the interpretation of your present moment, period. Yeah, yeah. Say that that again. Hit him with that last sentence again. In order for you statistically to increase your level of happiness in your life, you have to control the interpretation that you have of the present moment. So what it's saying is that in life, when you go through experiences, there's only two things you can interpret the experience to be, either positive or negative. There is no in between. Mm. And the fact that you have the choice to choose either one lets you know that you have the choice to be either happy or stressed. It comes from your Mm. interpretation of the moment for years to come. So it's the interpretation of the action or the moment that is where the happiness of life lies. So yeah, present, being present, being aware and being in the moment, that is uh, a key to happiness, yet it's the hardest thing to uh, acquire in this game. So anyways, that was a heavy philosophical moment. Yeah, yeah, but but I, love to, I love to read those kind of things because I'm infatuated with, obviously, with creating space, this semblance of pursuing your best self. How do I get each moment? How am I better? How am I as a physical ball of energy mm-hmm. and I'm bouncing off of other energies 
all out in this universe. How do I leave this energy that I just touched better having touched it? So that's, that's my goal, trying to mm. figure out how to do that, right? So as we segue using that, as being a very accomplished ESPN films director and producer, a big energy in this big business, how do you deal with the responsibility of being that guy and people relying on you and wanting you? And I mean, you're an all-star in, in this realm, um, and, and there are heavy weights that fall on your shoulders because of that. How do you deal with this responsibility? I mean, that's one of the toughest things I struggle with, Wes, is dealing with the responsibility. You know, I think I'm a very fun-loving person. Uh, a lot of people say I have a little kid spirit. Like, I'm always, you know, if you go to a party and the kids are playing outside basketball and the adults are inside, most of the time you can probably catch me outside playing with the kids. Got it. Talking noise to them. But, uh, <laughs> So responsibility is one of my, dealing with responsibility is one of my, I say, you know, weaknesses. You know, we all have weaknesses. Nobody's perfect. I think for me, one of my weaknesses is that I love to do what I love to do. Stuff I don't love to do, I really don't love to do. Got it. And so I have to really force myself to open my mind to being financially responsible, to being an I-dotter and a T-crosser, to being someone who is into the spreadsheet as I am into the, the script. You know, right. and for me, that's a real, that's a real struggle. Like I have to really push myself to mature in that way. I have to really force myself down that line. Whereas to write and to direct and envision ideas and to make them come to fruition and all that, it comes naturally to me. I love it. And it comes easy. The dealing with the weaknesses is like, that's the difference between being a success and not a success. To me. What's your biggest mistake? Uh, in, in your career thus far? Does it stem from your weaknesses? Uh, my biggest mistake in my career thus far. Wow, I made so many. I make big mistakes. Like, I make one big mistake, seriously, every three months. I okay. make a big mistake. And I'm always so frustrated with myself. I'm very hard on myself. Give me an example. And I, I think. Yeah, I'll give you an example. So, example. so, The Walk Off is a movie I just completed for SEC Network. And it's about Warren Morris, the only player ever in the history of the College World Series to hit a walk off home run to win the College World Series. <sighs> What a, yeah. what a G. Yeah, G. He's a G for real. And uh, he's a great dude. Uh, the movie process, though, I was so busy doing the walk-off and doing a movie called No Experience Required about Texas A&M football that's coming out here on September 6th and doing Redemption Song, which you have seen, the movie about Howard Soccer and the Spike Lee series. I directed that film along with uh, my producer, Mark Wright. I was so busy that I didn't give the proper amount of attention to the walk-off and ended up painting myself into a corner where I really had to hit the gas hard at the end. And I felt so much frustration towards myself about letting it get running behind in schedule that I almost, I, I made the situation worse by expending a lot of energy being frustrated at me and being frustrated at my past performance and criticizing myself and being like, dang, why didn't you, you could have done that earlier. Why didn't you, I spent a lot of energy doing that. That energy put me further behind schedule by being so self-critical instead of just being like, okay, I messed up. That is the past. I'm asking you, God, for forgiveness. I need you with me now. We need a miracle, homeboy. We got to pull something out. Right. So I need you with me. Forget about what happened before. I apologize. I won't do it again. I'm with you. I need you with me. Let's get this movie done, which eventually is where I got to. And the movie got done and got done well, I feel like. But on the way there, I wasted energy beating myself up. And my real friends... And there's only like a few of them in the world. My real friends know they counsel me from time to time because whenever they, I call them and I'm depressed, it's because I'm beating myself up. 
Got it. I will have just accomplished usually doing something fantastic, some good movie or something, some kind of movie premiere or something in my life. And I'll call them like, oh, man, I haven't accomplished anything. I need to get stuff done. They're like, Kay, Kay Holly, man. Say, come, Kay Holly, man. Why are you always beating yourself up, dude? You're too hard on yourself. Relax. Look at your life. Look where your life is now compared to where it was 10 years ago. Like, you're doing it, man. You're not, they keep saying, uh, I'm going to tell this story. This is a little sad, but it needs to be heard because a lot of people like me who are too hard on themselves. Sam Sarpong is an actor and a model, one of the most successful models uh, from a, a African um, heritage. He's like African. He's from European. He came from overseas, and he came to America. He was one of the first black people to the face of polo. He was voted male model of the year in his home country a number of times. And just recently, last year, last fall, Sam killed himself. Wow. And... Sorry to hear that. Was that a good friend of yours? He's a good friend of Charles Porter, an actor who's a really good friend of mine. And okay. Sam and I met on a, a movie set once. We were both like 25 years old, just sparkling and starting out in L.A. Right. And I remember we just kicked it one day. It was him. I remember, never forget, it was, a, it was an action movie. And it was like they were had a scene where they were robbing this bank. And it was like, there was cut. And it was in between takes. And we were chilling while they were resetting cameras. And he had the gun. It's not a real gun, but it looked like a real badass gun. He right. had the gun in his hand. He's trolling it on his finger while he's talking to me. He trolling the gun on his finger. <laughs> That's why every time I think of him, I think of that image. And Charles was sitting there. We were talking. We were all so young and excited and vibrant. But what Sam said to his, um, to his friend just before he killed himself, just leading up to that, he kept asking them. He's like, man, when am I going to make it? Wow. When am I going to make it? Wow. This is a dude who's the model of the year. Heavily like accomplished. He is the face of Pope. He's done all these things. You already made it. But you never feel like you made it. And he lost his life to the same feeling I'm talking about. Wow. He lost his life to the feeling of never being satisfied. So how do you go throughout your day with short-term memory mm-hmm. and giving yourself grace to not allow yourself to dig too deep of a ditch for yourself because I'm the same person, Mm -hmm. Kenan. I've been there. Uh, I just released a podcast today that told my story and I almost climbed the fence of the Lionsgate Bridge in Vancouver and I almost jumped off because I was that guy that was playing in front of 25, 30,000 people and then I was homeless. And so I know what that feels like because I battle that side of me every single day. I had it today in yoga. Had it today in yoga. Creating space is not going to get there. You're wasting your time. People don't believe in you. you. You don't believe in yourself. I had that today. What is your ritual, your routine to be able to get yourself out of that negative chatter that doesn't serve you in any capacity? Right. Well, I'll give you the answer. It's very simple. And then, then I got to ask you a question. Because that Vancouver <laughs> right. story just, just uh, stirred something in me. Um, the way I do it is the way I keep peaceful and keep going forward is just to say thank you. You know, thank you. Every day, every second that I get stressed, and this is something I've developed just lately, I just tell God, thank you. Thank you for my beautiful sons. Thank you. They're smart as a mug, man. I love these guys. <laughs> thank you for my thank you for my house. Thank you for these movie posters. Thank you for letting me do something I love. Thank you for getting me here in my career. Thank you for my friends. Thank you for my Aunt Cheryl. She believes in me. Right. Thank you for my boy Pete. You know what I mean? He was down with me since the start, making people laugh in these moves. Thank you for my people around me, my circle. Thank you for my shoes. I like these shoes. These shoes are fly as a mug. <laughs> thank you for, you know, I think just being thankful. I, I tend to, the more I say thank you, the more the stress starts to dissipate. And like that fog kind of clears over my head because it's not real. That's what makes it so hard, Wes, is that fog feels so real 
that fog of like, man, things are never going to be any good. I'm never right. going to be good enough. That feels so real. Like for Sam, it got so real that it became real to the point where, you know, he just couldn't, he couldn't take, he cashed out. He couldn't take it anymore, yeah. you know? And I think that's the point where I don't ever want my sons to get there. I don't ever want none of my friends to get there. I always want them to be able to hear what we're talking about now and not get there. Right. I remember as a kid thinking very seriously about suicide, you know, and not even a way, not in a way that I thought about killing myself, but the way I thought about it, like as an option, like what, and I told myself, I'll never go do that. I told myself I was really young, maybe like 10 or 11. I said, I'll never do that. Yeah. I've decided I'm a fighter. I'm a fight. You may, they may kill me, but I'm not taking myself out. Right. I'm the fight. And I think, you know, now at that time I didn't understand how, how the fog can make you be willing to just let the fight go. And like I just did never, it's going to get better. You know, so what I was pledging there, I didn't know who I was pledging against. I didn't know the opposition. But knowing it now, that builds to, uh, you know, me. The question I have for you is like at that moment when you're about to hop that fence in Vancouver, you're about to, you know, you're really, really out there. You're out, you're out, you left the house to go do it. You know, you did not sit in the crib talking about it. You you left the house to go do it. Like, what makes you not? Um, When I was on that fence, uh, and I just had my hands in between the spaces in the fence and I was looking out and I was having panic attacks every day and I couldn't look at another human in the eye cause I felt like they could just see my soul, man. I felt like they could just see it. Cause I don't know. And at that moment, my mom, when I was young, real young, I used, when I would cry, I'm an emotional cat, man. Yeah. You know what I'm saying like I'm driven by emotion, whether yeah. that be ang- like anger that, that drives me to, to meet goals or whether it be sadness of feeling lonely and, or, or whatever. I'm an emotional cat, and I've accepted that, <laughs> yeah. right? But at that moment, my mom's voice. Now, my mom's father committed suicide. His brother committed suicide. So depression and suicide is heavy in the family. And I can remember when I was young, my mom talking about it, and I could see. My mom didn't know that I could see. But I've always been I've been sensitive to energy, always, even when I was little, man. There, there have been times where I can just f- walk into a room and I can feel it, man. I can take the temperature of the room. It's just a gift that I have. I think the muscle that i built through the hypersensitivity that I've had as an insecure human being. However, to go back to your story, I heard my mom. When she used to hold me, she used to be like, don't cry. It's okay. You're good. Don't cry. And I can remember that voice. And my parents were in easily South Carolina and I was in Vancouver and my knee was in bad shape and I was having panic attacks every night and just wasn't fun anymore, man. You know, and, and I remember hearing that voice and I just, I perked up for a second and I said, why would I do that to my mother? Mm. She lost her dad. She lost her uncle. Why would I do that to my mother? And I got back on the bike and I just decided to fight. And from that decision, Kenan is stemmed what we're doing right here. So it's the hardest time of the best decision I ever made, man. Yeah. But the fog you talk about, that is real. It will lay there around you for as long as you allow it. But you got to decide not to allow it. And gratitude is the biggest thing that I use. I have a gratitude list during the day. Do you have something like that, a gratitude list? No, that's a good idea, though. No, mine's more like mantras. I just kind of chant to myself. There you go. Like a gratitude list, though, putting it down. Well, yeah, for me, it's waking up in the morning, and I do three in the morning, and then at night, I just, I'll sit there in bed, and I'll just let whatever comes go, and I'll just put it down. So last night, it was, man, I'm so excited to have this interview. I'm so excited, and and I know a lot of people would 
take this energy that I have that's not allowing me to go to sleep as fear, but well, this is excitement, man. Mm. I'm, I'm getting to play in the big leagues. Like this guy's a super important individual in the films industry. And I get to go sit with him and talk about it, you know? So just collecting my thoughts and, and what I was thinking about today, you know, was completely against all of the, mon- the mantras that I've, that I've been doing, you know, fear. And, and fear will grasp you. It's easy to get scared, man, and it's hard to admit it, you know? It's easy to get scared, and it's hard to admit it. It's a great segue for a cultural question that I want to talk to you about. Sure. Fear. Mm-hmm. Um, as an African-American male mm-hmm. uh, in society right now, I don't know what to say. <laughs> I don't know what to say, man. I, I don't think that I could say enough, and I won't even try to begin to to talk about how saddened I am by it because it affects me in, in so many different ways to see the injustice and feel as though I can't do anything really to help. Mm. I can only manage myself right now and be the best human being I can be. But to the question, what is it like being African-American male in this society right now where tension is high, man? Mm. What's it like? Huh. What's it like? I mean, number one is... You know, being a being being an African American man, being a black dude, is very empowering in some ways, right? Because when I walk into, like, let me give an example, Wes. If I walk into Panera Bread today, and there's no one else who's my same demographic in there, right? When I open my mouth, when I walk in, you say you can feel energy. When you walk in as a black male, a black dude, right? If you walk into a restaurant, immediately when you walk in, attention perks. From everybody, the girl behind the counter, whatever her race is, you know, the other one behind the counter, whatever her race is, the dude who's sitting there on the set, everyone perks up, especially if you're young, a young black man, people right. perk up immediately everywhere you go. Now, sometimes the perk, you can sense fear, sometimes it's excitement, but it's always like, here comes something different, especially if you're going in, like I'm talking specifically my black and my black American life is one where I'm constantly, for the most part, I probably spend 80% of my life in situations that are mostly Euro-American, you feel me? Not yeah. African-American situations, you know? So I'm mostly in situations where I am the unique or, out or other, or I am the one who is different. Okay. That's most of my life. So I'm used to these scenarios. So when I'm talking, I'm talking from this angle. You know, there's many different black lives, and black American lifestyles. And one, you know, there are many people who spend a lot of their black American life living around other black people. That's most of their life. They go to church, go to school, live in the neighborhoods with other black people. I've had that life when I was, you know, a kid and at different times in my life, but that's not my life now. Right. So when I walk in, the energy, first of all, is, is there's a tension there. And I feel sometimes I wish I could walk in a room and not have my blackness walk into the room first. Wow. You know, is, there, would, is there a method that you've formed to try to cut that tension? Uh, no, nah, I mean, the tension is just going to be what it is. And I kind of like it. I mean, everyone wants to be special, right? Sure. So when you walk into a boardroom and it's all like, you know, it's all like 50-year-old, 45-year-old European-American males, a few Euro-American females, you know, maybe one other person, you know, in the name right. of a diversity and inclusion. And it just feels like regular to me. You know what I mean? It feels regular. Like to walk in, um, immediately, everything you say is going to be scrutinized more. Are you using the correct English? How is your diction? Is he well-spoken? Is he not well-spoken? Are his ideas, co- are they, his ideas well uh, well thought out? Or are they not well thought out? Other people in the room, they can say whatever, and no one's going to really examine them for what they are. They're going to be examined by who they are. Like, is this person, is Mark a good speaker? Is Craig a good speaker? Is Dave a good speaker? Is Steve a good speaker? There are Dave, Steve, Mark, 
They're there they're themselves. When you are the only guy, the only black dude in the room, they're like, "Is can black dude speak good? Ready, go. <laughs> Let's hear you. Wow. You know, it's like you're repping way more than yourself. You're repping way more than yourself. That's what I said. I was the first black dude ever hired as a producer at NFL Films. Not like I'm 100 years old, dude. That was in 1999, and I'm the first black dude to ever have that job. So I knew, and I, the janitor told me that. The janitor, uh, he was the Leon. He was like, you know you're the first black dude they let up in here, right? <laughs> You know that, right? It's like nine wow. o'clock at night. And I was still at work, and he was like, "Just so you know, you the first one up in here. So you he, better he was act right." To, he was telling you, "You're representing us, man. Yeah. Hold it down." Yeah, hold he was, it uh, down. He's like, "He's like, yep, you and Tiffany, y'all the first one. Yeah. I've been here a long time. I've never seen another." I was like, <laughs> I, "I hear you, Leon. I'm with it, man. I got it." And you know, one of my proudest things is, you know, my boy uh, John Marsh is working there now. My boy Eternal Polk came through there. Terrell Riley, Wayne Riley, Kevin Jackson. You hear me? These wow. people are the other brothers who came after me because when I was there, I did what I did. Whatever, I, whatever it was I was supposed to do, I must have did it because the brothers came after me, you know. So I'm just like, uh, and I must, and you know, I'm, I'm a people who know me know I'm a little wild and I'm a bit of a slap at times. So I definitely, like I said, I make a big mistake every three months. Got it. But my, my strengths and my, my blessing and my connection to, to God and to creativity and to telling truth into making people feel something, into delivering what Steve Sable said, delivering the moment. You got to deliver the moment. That's your job as a filmmaker. That's your only job. If the moment is for them to laugh and they laugh, you won. If right. the moment is for them to cry and you actually made them cry, then you won. If you didn't make them cry, if they didn't feel anything, you lost. It's not uh, subjective. This is very objective. Did you make the people feel something? If you did, you won. If you didn't, you lost. And uh, that learning and that development, you know, that, that experience for me is just something that's priceless for, you know, life. You can call God the universe, life, whatever you call it, for whatever it is to have allowed me, someone who's so full of flaws, to get that teaching, to be able to be just good enough to not mess it up. Yes, to right. succeed, you know, to be just good enough to not mess it up and still succeed is, a, is something I like. That makes me say thank you. That's beautiful, man. That's beautiful. So... A lot of a lot of people would list that are listening right now would say you're a pioneer, man. You are revolution. No, man. No, my mom was a pioneer. She was the first black person admitted to North Texas State University in Dallas. She came from uh, Galveston, Texas. My dad's a pioneer. He's like 1965. Went to Sunny Buffalo, got a law degree. Went to Berkeley in 1967 or something. Got another law degree. Back when it was really hard to do stuff for black people, Lincoln Tiger Phillips, the coach of Howard University soccer in 1971, is a pioneer. He's the first black dude to ever win the national championship. Not John Thompson, Lincoln Tiger Phillips. Look him up. So those guys are pioneers. We're just riding on their coattails. To be honest, I'm being real about that. I'm not trying to be fake humble. I'm being serious. Black people in my generation, we're riding on the coattails of dudes who are like really pioneers, who are really in danger for their lives, who are really having to sacrifice everything just to have a little bit. You feel me? We're not. We're just like we're like that second wave. We're we're like a we're we're suburban pioneers. We're bougie pioneers. But let's know? be honest, Kenan. There is a time now in this society where there is a necessity for a second wave. There is still inequality and racism that is. We have to admit it. It is prevalent in this society. You deal with it. Um, it 
what's going on in society right now. I mean, yeah. the the killings recently in Baton Rouge, yeah. Minneapolis. And yesterday, now, y'all, we're talking, this happened yesterday. This podcast we're doing right now is July 8th, right? Yes. All this stuff, that Dallas thing, y'all, happened last night. Me and Wes are talking the day after that. Yeah. I mean, last night, I didn't drive home. I stayed at my friend's house because I was afraid to drive home. Because the Dallas thing happened, I knew the cops would be... Hurt, mad, riled up on code red in my registration for my car. I did found my registration for my car is lapsed. So I've been pulled over yesterday or two days ago for my ret- registration in my car. So I had a reason to be pulled over already. And given everything that was happening, it was two o'clock in the morning because I worked till super late last night working on this Texas A&M movie. And I really was too, I was like, I was like, I'm just, it's not worth the risk for me to drive home right now. Because wow. I could be legitimately pulled over for a real reason because my registration is out. These days, your registration being out, if, you're, if you look like me, that could be punishable by death. I couldn't, I, couldn't, I, I'm, I couldn't even begin to imagine what that would be like to not feel like I could drive home for fear that I would get pulled over because of my registration wasn't renewed and that I could potentially lose my life. I think that's such a huge injustice. I, 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 I'm so passionate now to figure out how to help how to make it better, how can we make it better? How are you with your two children? How are mm-hmm. you parenting them? What do you say to them? It's funny. My, my good friend Maria Taylor, she's a, she's a brilliant mind, and she was uh, asking me today about that same thing. She was like, what are you going to say to Quan? What are you going to say to Zaid? Those are my sons. Quan's 12, Zaid is 10. What are you going to say to Quan and Zaid about what happened last night? And I told her, you know, I really haven't said anything to them. I'm from, I'm a single dad, you know, single, half the time, single dad. Uh, their mom and I are no longer together. We were married. We're not. And now I have them by myself. So I just got them back from their mom today at like 1230. So I haven't told them anything yet. I haven't said anything. As of right now, we're in the afternoon. I haven't said anything to them yet. But when they first came to me, Wes, I was really being very short with them, intense. Like I was, I was like kind of almost like angry with them, right? Like very much like a hard coach, which is what I get like sometime with them. I was very much like no stand up talk. Look to me, Nigel, you're talking to me. Stop right. mumbling to my son Quan. And I realized I'm being tense with them because I'm tense about the situation. Wow. I'm tense about their future. I'm very tense about their future, man. This is the first time I can legitimately say I don't think things are better for for African American people. For an African American, for a black boy right now, I think it might be harder for them than it was for me. And I wow. never thought I'd say that. Like, I'm talking financially, society-wise, the way you're looked at. I think it might be harder for them than it was for me. And that's very, like, I feel very disempowered. Like, what can I do? What the heck? How'd this happen? We were, like, black people, white people, like, we were cool. We were going to school together. Right. You know, we were getting to know each other. We were, like, the kind of the first generation to really go to school together without being forced by busing or whatever. Sure. We were just kind of, we were in school together. We learned each other, regular people. Things should get better, right? Right. So for this to have happened, kind of while we were working and doing our jobs and going on vacation and just doing what Americans do, for the country to have gotten like this is really kind of, like, shocking. It's, it's like, what the hell? What did we do? We messed right. up somewhere. Right. Like somewhere along the way, we fell asleep at the wheel and let this shit happen. And I just, uh, I mean, I feel fear. I feel a sense of like desperation because I don't know what I could do. But I also feel a deep underlying belief that I believe in God. Yes, but I believe in people, man. I believe in people. So I just look at those cops in Dallas. 
just look at that one clip on CNN where like the cops are running to the two cops who were shot on the ground. They're running to them. Just look at the way they're running to them when they put their hands on their on their chest when their guy their homeboys are down. Like that's their that's their home that's their guys. That's their homies. That was the most human image I've seen of a cop maybe ever in my entire life. Was them running to put their hands on their brothers who were they know they're dying. They can't do nothing. They're not doctors. This dude just got shot laying there unconscious. Sniper they can't do nothing. fire. Sniper fire. Sniper. Dude, your friend is laying down there and you run to him and yeah, you put your hand on him, but you're not a doctor. What are you gonna do? Like the helplessness in their bodies. There was no sound like when I'm watching this, Wes. I'm just watching the image. And the, the helplessness and the desperation and the genuine care in their bodies. They touch their the the other police officers, coworkers, their comrades, their brothers. You know, it's like more like being a cop is more like being like a, a soldier or an athlete, you know. It's not sure. like your coworker. It's not your right. coworker. Right. Your coworker don't gotta make sure you don't get shot while you go up into a department, like you up into a convenience store or you go and, you know, serve a warrant or you yeah. go and stop a domestic violence dispute. Your coworker ain't that. These are like your brothers, man. And I saw that and it made change my it was two white dudes, two two European American cops. And the color didn't matter when I saw that. It's like, these guys are real people. They're humans. And a, a lot of times, if you're not careful being a black man, you can start hating everybody and thinking everyone is just a, like, a, like a mindless killing machine. Everyone's after us. Everyone thinks we're thugs. Everyone thinks we're worthless. Everyone, everyone, everyone's against us. And you stop. And what happens is you do exactly to everybody else what you're really mad and hurt about that they've done to you. Is that they, you are now making them inhuman. You're now making them inhuman. That's your interpretation of it. Yeah, you're interpreting them, yeah, as being now because of what they did to you and what they've done to you and what they did to the dude in Ferguson, what they did to the dude in New York, what they did to the dude, what they did to Trayvon. You're so mad, you start to do to them exactly what you don't want done to you. All we want to do, this is it, all we want to do is be treated as human. Like, all I'll say is this. For people who don't agree, you're conservative, you're liberal, you're whatever, all I'll say is this. Look, forget all the cop stuff. Just look at George Zimmerman. In that, in that thing, right? If Trayvon Martin was Tracy Martin, and Tracy Martin was a Caucasian girl, European-American girl, white girl, walking back from the convenience store, and a dude jumps out of the car, a grown-up, she's a teenager, a grown-up man jumps out of the car and confronts her and tells her she shouldn't be here, and he has a gun? And in, in an altercation, she tries to fight him off. She's like, what do you, she tries to fight him off because a grown-up man ran up on her, this little white girl, and the dude shoots her? Zimmerman, he'd be in jail right now awaiting the date of his execution. Yeah, there's no doubt. If Tracy had been killed and laying there bleeding and dying on that sidewalk and he had jumped out of his car, didn't know her, told her she shouldn't be here and confronted her. He shot Tracy. She's a teenager. What the hell are you doing? Leave her alone. Right. But you make Tracy Trayvon and all of a sudden he didn't get no time. So, so that's the difference between the value of a white girl and a black boy is that the girl, a white girl, he'd be waiting. You know I'm telling the truth, y'all. He'd be in jail right now waiting his execution date. But a black boy, he didn't get five years or 12 years or, or life in prison but no death penalty. He got nothing. He was auctioning the gun he killed Trayvon with off online the other day. He was auctioning the gun. Is that honest? He was actually auctioning he was the auction- gun? Yeah, he was auctioning the gun. Someone bought it? No, the, the, the uproar, I guess, from him doing it made him stop or he took yeah, it down. He was, he was going to auction the gun he killed Tracy with, Trayvon with, whoever. It didn't matter. That's all I'm saying. It shouldn't matter. If we're so all human, it shouldn't matter. I'm feeling an emotional response right now. I'm, I'm, my chest is bowing up. Uh, I'm getting angry. That's the emotional response. The right response is love. In this society right now where tensions are high and you're emotionally attached to the situation, we are. Mm-hmm. I'm not any different than this. I have more African-American friends than I have white friends. Um, 
I just grew up in that culture. Uh, it, it, this means as much to me as it does to you. However, I, I, I can't even act as if I know what it's like. But the courageous and the right thing to do right now is to throw love at these individuals like Martin Luther King said. Only light can drive out dark. Hmm. How do you find the courage to throw love at the hate? I mean, I don't know, you know. I'm not as developed as a human being as Martin Luther King was. You know, I'm not thinking love right now. I'm thinking protection. I'm thinking safety for my sons. I'm thinking try not to hate. I'm more on that. Just I'm on that level. Like, I'm not up on that level of being able to love through this right now. I'm just trying not to hate through this. Try not to be accusing people who didn't have nothing to do with it. Try not to group them together with the folks who did. You know, I just, I just don't want to see this turn into like a racial war between police officers and black men. Because that thing in Dallas, that really changed the game. You know, I think that was the exact opposite of what Martin Luther King was talking about. You know, we can't ever win a gun war, guys. This is talking to my other black dudes. Like, we can't outgun the police. That's stupid. That's never going to work. You're not going to be able to kill your way back into having a life. That's not going to work. It's going to get more of us killed. I think when it comes to love, it's like, I mean, let's start with understanding. Let's start with what we're doing right here. Where's the white dude and the black dude talking right now, y'all? We're just having this conversation. I think for too long, we stopped talking about race. We act like it was all good. And now we realize it's not all good. So let's have real conversations at work, real conversations at the soccer field, real conversations in the grocery store. Don't have to be super deep and long. Just really talk about it. Don't be afraid to talk about race anymore. Because if we don't talk about it, we're going to keep silently going down this same hole towards us. We, I hate you. You hate me because you look like this and I look like that. And I don't understand you. I don't live around you. You don't live around me. I don't work around you. You don't work around me. We'll keep going towards modern day segregation. And, uh, I mean, I, I, like I said, I don't, I don't know about love right now. I'm just, my effort is just to not, not be hateful. Well, it feels like to me that you're, you're aware of where you are in your stance, and it's important to you to work your way through it in your own particular way. Uh, and, and I feel you've got a duty to be able to protect your kids uh, and do what you feel is necessary, and that's important. That's important, and, and there's no doubt in my mind that through this situation, your entire family, extended family, everyone will grow, but the, t- the tensions are high, and, and, and it's unfortunate. To redirect in a new direction, mm-hmm. to be able to, to keep things not as if we're not rep- misrepresenting the severity of what's going on, but mm-hmm. to route this back around into a positive light, yeah. into something that th- the message that the listeners can take from on the positive side. If you can get there with me. What would you say to the individual who's sitting in the classroom, white, black, brown, doesn't matter, that has a dream but doesn't believe they can get it? Mm -hmm. They're good at something. They're different than other people. They know they are. But I don't have enough money. Mm -hmm. I'm not good enough looking. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't grow up in the right side of town. I can't. I won't. It won't happen. What do you tell that person? I tell you, I tell them, first of all, I hear you. I hear you. You feel like you don't got the resources to make your dreams come true. You know, you don't got, either don't got the talent and ability or don't got the money and connections or you just don't got the time because you're busy doing other stuff or you just don't got it. You don't got the it factor. You don't feel like you have it, but you want, but you want it. 
I would say I, I feel that. I feel that at least one time every day. <laughs> I feel that same feeling at least once every day. So you tell them they're not alone. I start with that. I start with that. And I tell them then after that, look, like I told you before, I'm anyone, like if you ask my sister or my brother, they all know, like, they call me Mr. Short-Term Memory as a kid. My dad would say, go mow the grass. I'm like, okay. And I start watching TV. He'd come back three hours later and be yelling at me and mad as hell. I wouldn't even remember him asking, Wes. Right. Until he started yelling. I'm like, what is he yelling about? This dude is right. tripping. Oh, yeah, the grass. <laughs> my bad. It's like, I don't have the strongest mind of all time. I'm a football player, you know. There's plenty of people out there who are smarter than me, you know. But I say, if, if, if life could work a good work of my life, given my shortcomings, which are a plenty. If if they could, if that something good could be made of my life, using the few the the good things I have to overcome all the bad things I have, then you damn sure can make it. Right. Because I was on the verge of self destruction many many times, on the verge of implosion many many times, on the verge of messing up and being too irresponsible, too this, too that, too this, too that, many many times. And if God is willing to work out. This good of a career, I mean, too. Look at that. That thing. That's the the the, the placard I have for my name, Ken and Holly, producer, ESPN Films, The White House. I mean, if he, if that, if I can go to the White House, being as much of a slap as I am, y'all can go to the White House and much more. You know, y'all can do it and much more. That's what I would tell them. You would tell them, don't allow anyone to take that dream away from you. Yeah, it's not, yours. Not because you have shortcomings. Name, tell me the perfect person. <laughs> name them. Because a lot of people walk around here and they try to maintain a facade of perfection. But we all know nobody's perfect. You know, it's like, it's like everybody shit stinks. Everyone. Nobody is perfect. So if you're not perfect, you, you don't have to overfocus on your weaknesses. Just work on your strengths. Okay, mm. so back to soccer. Thierry Henry, Arsene Wenger, Arsenal. No one wanted Henry when he was playing at the club in French. I forgot what, maybe in Marseille. No, he wasn't highly touted as a striker, because he couldn't head the ball. Everyone's like, he can't head the ball. He's not good in the air. He can't head the ball. And Arsene Wenger said, I don't care about that. This guy has some of the most gifted two feet I've ever seen. Right. I'm going to get him, bring him here, and I'm not going to train him on heading the ball, as you all have been trying to do. I'm going to make him work on just his strengths all day, every day. He's going to practice what he's already good at until his strengths, which are already on a level of 1 to 100. He's already a 91. He's going to become a 99. On, on what he's already good at. And he did that. And you see what happened? Like Henri, unstoppable. 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 He hits, I mean, like a touch of class, world mm-hmm. class from Terry yeah, He was a part of that group that he made the Invincibles. I mean, that 2004 group, they didn't yeah, lose a game. Yeah, And he yeah. was that guy yep. on the team. I mean, every, I would say 90% of the, the jerseys that were in Emirates at that time were Henri jerseys. Yep, number, number 14, 14 Henri. You know? So I think that I would just tell the kid that, like, don't worry about your shortcomings. No, you're not perfect. You're not beautifully handsome perfectly. You're not smart or intellectual perfectly. You're not uh, well-spoken. Your speech isn't perfect. But you don't got to be perfect. Just take what you do well and really, really do it well. Right. Right. Second question. Mm -hmm. For the individual who is working the job that they hate Mm. and, man, they're got these dreams, you know, on Bank of America Tower, downtown Charlotte, mm-hmm. and I'm making good money, and I'm caught up in this lifestyle yeah. of the amount of money that I'm making, and everything in my life is a product of that, right? I'm li- making close to six figures, or mm-hmm. maybe I'm not, but I hate going to work every mm-hmm. day. 
But man, on the weekends, I love when I have a fo- a, f- a camera mm. and I'm doing photography. I yeah. love that. Yeah. And I really wish I could make that my my life. Mm. Really wish that I could make that. That's my dream life. But I got to get back to work, and I got to do this because this is what makes the money, and I, I have to do it. This is the job. What do you tell that person that is stuck in the job they hate and their soul is dying because? They do not live a life that they love. Yeah, I would tell them, quit complaining, man. You got money. You got a nice ass car. Quit your ass complaining, man. People out here don't got no food. You talking about that? You driving around in a goddamn Acura. I'm like, <laughs> it's like you're whining, but no, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm playing with y'all. <laughs> what would I tell them? I'd be like, uh, let's see. What would I really tell them? I tell them, I'd be like, yeah, it's not over for you, you know? Life expectancy now is longer than it's ever been. Right. There's a good chance you could be 85. You're probably saying all these things about your lack of interest in your career in your 40s. Hopefully in your 30s. Maybe even in your 20s. That's great. There's plenty of time for you to recreate yourself. You know, there's plenty of time for you to do something else. When I was 32, ask me what job was when I was 32. What were you doing at 32 years At 32, I was in Houston, Texas, in the Westheimer area, working at Canon Business Solutions, selling copiers. No way. Yeah. 32 years old. At 32. Old. At 34 years old, I was in the Richmond area of Houston, Texas, working at Kaplan University, Texas School of Business, which is basically like an IT technical type school, doing admissions. 34? At 34. What age were you when you hit the redirect? At 35, my boy Rory Karp, brilliant director, director of The Book of Manning, director of I Hate Christian Leitner. Roy's a bad dude. Wow. He get this job. He's my he might he's one of my best friends in the world. One of my best friends in the world. He called me and said, "You got to come back to to work with me, man. You got to come back and work at NASCAR. Come to Charlotte. You know, you should join us. We got a strong team here. You should get back to filmmaking. You should do this." And uh, it was like when Little Wayne called Drake. I was like, "Dude, I'm yeah. Let me get that flight. Let me catch that <laughs> flight and see what's up." So can't get out of this uh-uh. soon enough. Yeah, so I would say don't. I would tell them don't give up on yourself because look, like I said, I was 34, working at basically ITT Technical, trying to convince kids to go to this technical school. And that job had its own fulfillment, and made me a better human being and a better worker too. the The thing is, when I make my movies, I don't make them with other filmmakers in mind. I make them in mind for the students who are at that ITT Technical School. My coworkers who were so miserable working there, at Kaplan School of Business. Texas School of Business, Kaplan Education, like they, they were miserable, but they wanted some entertainment on the weekend. I make movies for them because I understand that life now. Right. Because I lost my NFL Films career halfway through. I lost my career. I lost, I lost everything at one time. I lost my career. I lost my marriage. I lost everything I had that I held dear, and it let me see a different side of America, not the successful, oh, I went to Duke. I'm a top 100 Texas football player. I'm, I lost that life and got to have the life of this irregular with pain and everything, not always winning. And now I get to tell stories to those folks that are going to make their hearts come alive. That's beautiful, man. Wow. Wow. What, uh, that makes me feel better as I turn 30 this year and I'm trying to create this out of nothing, out of nothing, man. I'm literally out of zero and I, I won't be stopped, but man, is it associated with, a lot of fear and a lot of self-doubt. So I, I want to thank you for all that you do in society, man. Um, 
the way you are able to make motion pictures that uh, take people out of the everyday trivial things in their lives and puts them into another experience uh, and brings them emotion, brings them happiness, sadness, takes them on a ride and, and makes them a better human being than they were before they watched the show. So not only that, man, uh, you're just a great guy, great vibes, very intelligent. And and I am leaving this better. Uh, and that's what creating space is all about, man. So I, I appreciate you coming onto the show, man. I'm so excited to allow the listenership to be able to get this, to soak it all in. Yeah. So much we covered, man. Yeah. Thank man, you, man. Thank my you brother, I appreciate me. it. Yeah, I appreciate you, man. I appreciate you having me in. You said, what is it? Uh, let me let me let you up in the house. It's belief, man. Okay. I believe in you and I believe what you're doing. All right. Where can the listeners find you, Kenan? They can find me on Instagram at KenanK100. That's K-E-N-A-N-K-1-0-0. Or on Twitter, at Kenan K. Holly. You, that's the whole name. Put it all together. You got to put the K in it, girl. Don't forget to put the K in it. Uh, yeah, you can't K-E-N-A-N-K-H-O-L-L-E-Y. leave the K out. K-E-N-K-A-N-K-H-O-L-L-E-Y. Kenan K. Holly. You IMDB me, girl. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you need to check his IMDB. Uh, IMDB that is, me. His IMDB game is strong, son. It is strong. Kenan, I appreciate it, my Thank man. Thank you, man. Appreciate uh, you. Guys, it doesn't get much better than that. It doesn't get much better than that. This has been Creating Space. I appreciate you guys for tuning in. We'll be back next week with something different. 